Well, we're ready to dive into our sermon this morning, into the Word of God. So if you would grab your Bible and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to finish chapter 14 this morning. We're at verses 26 through 40. And just a reminder that we're finishing up a a pretty lengthy section here in the letter where Paul is talking about gathered worship. He's, He's talking to the Corinthians about what they do and how they do it and why they do it when they come together on a Sunday morning for their worship services. So I want to uh, do something that is a little bit unfamiliar with us here at Edgewater. We tend to be, um, you know, pretty uh, non-interactive when it comes to, to sermons, but uh, I want to ask you to interact with me just a little bit. So you think about why we're here. What is the purpose of corporate worship? Why do we gather together on a Sunday morning? What are, what are we doing here when we gather? I want to hear from you. Give me some Give me some answers. What's the purpose of corporate worship gatherings? Worship God. To glorify God in Christ. To acknowledge Him. Say again? To build up each other, to build up one another. Say again? To unite Christ's body. Any other thoughts? Those are good. Those are all good. To give a sacrifice of praise, is that what you said? To remember the resurrection, specifically on a Sunday morning, gathering together on the first day of the week as he rose on the first day, yeah. The word tells us to gather together, right. Any other thoughts? Fellowship. Fellowship. Yeah. These are good. To spur one another on to love and good deeds. Yeah. So all of these answers are correct. And, and, I, and I think that they kind of hone in on two main ideas. And I'm glad you came up with the two main ideas that I did. Things were on the, were on the same page, we're on the right track. And, and I want to say this. These are two mutually dependent aims. The first one is to glorify God, right? We talked about that. Several of you mentioned things along those lines, to worship Him, to praise Him, to obey Him, to reflect Him. We glorify God when we gather together as His people. At the same time, we also edify the church. We build up one another in love and in truth. Zoe, you mentioned the unity uh, that, that's so important, the unity of, of redeemed fellowship. You said that. Through Christ. Right. So the, these, are, these are mutually dependent aims, to glorify God and at the same time to edify the church. I say they're mutually dependent because to glorify God is to build up the church, right? And as we build up the church, what we're doing is we're becoming people who more glorify God. So again, Paul has spent the last four chapters speaking to the Corinthians about what they're doing when they gather together. He's he's talking about how they're doing, quote unquote, doing church. In other words, how they were behaving, how they were interacting with one another in their corporate worship gatherings, and he's addressing some problems. He's correcting them about some issues that are going on in their public gatherings in which they were failing to love one another. They were failing to edify one another. There was a very individualistic, sort of selfish selfish sort of focus that was pervasive in their, their worship gatherings, and thereby, by not loving one another and edifying one another, they were failing to glorify and reflect God. That's been sort of the, 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 sort of the big picture view of what chapters 11 through 14 have been addressing and as we continue to, to fill that out and finish up his thought process here, I want to I point us back to something. It's important to keep in mind that the problems that the Corinthians were experiencing, the problems that were permeating the church, were directly related to the people 
being heavily influenced by the values of their culture over and above the values of the gospel. So in other words, you could say it like this. They were being formed more by the world than they were by the word. That's been something that Paul is just constantly addressing throughout this letter. And it's equally important to understand this, that that difference between being uh, formed by the values of the world versus the values of the, the word of God, it really boils down to this. Those are two diametrically opposed values. The value of the world, and by the way, this is universally applicable. It was applicable for them, and it's applicable now. It's always applicable. The value of, of, of the world and the value of the gospel have two starkly different understandings. Get this. This is important. Of what human freedom is. What it means to be free. You, you might rephrase it by saying what it means to be really fully alive, to be what we were intended to be. The values of the world and the values of the gospel understand human freedom in starkly different ways. So let me ask this question. This is rhetorical. You don't have to respond to it. But what, what makes us truly free? What makes us truly free? You know, ever since the great and tragic fall of humanity back in Genesis chapter 3, that is, when sin entered into the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and that sin cursed everything, ever since that point, there's been a total disconnect between God's definition of human freedom and our own definition of human freedom. God has designed us to thrive in freedom when we live within the order and the boundaries that he has set for our flourishing. And because God is the creator, God has made us, he knows best. So for God to say, this is the order, this, these are the boundaries in which you are, you are made for, that is, by very definition, what we were meant to flourish under. We, on the other hand, have wrongly believed that freedom is found within the limitlessness of our own self-expression. I'm going to do me, right? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to express what I feel, what I believe to be true for myself. That's where we think freedom is found. In other words, I'm constantly tempted to believe that I'm only truly free when I am unconstrained by the demands or the expectations of others, whether that's God or anyone else. And so if we, if we understand that fundamental difference in worldviews, God's definition of what it means to be free versus how we've redefined that, we realize that the whole story of the Bible is an instructive record of the clash of these two worldviews. In it, we see the destructive consequences of humanity's quest to define freedom for ourselves, and we also see God's merciful efforts to call us back into true freedom by reestablishing his loving rule over our lives. And that all culminates, of course, in the arrival of Jesus Christ, who came to redeem us from our sin through his life, death, and resurrection. That's really the story of the Bible. And by faith, and by God's grace, those of us who have responded to that call back into fellowship with God, we are, we are his people. We are now invited to walk in that freedom on a daily basis. We're invited to live within that true freedom that only he can bring. But here's the thing. We have to still choose to live in it. It doesn't mean that you choose your salvation, you were graciously saved by a merciful God who called you out of the sin of the world. But when he gives you new life, you have to choose to live in it. You're invited to walk in it daily. In other words, saved people can still live like enslaved people. Our sin, forgiven as it is, though not yet fully eradicated, is constantly tempting us to rely again on the false promises of freedom 
through an unfettered self-expression. Galatians 5.1 says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. That's a glorious truth. But it also says this, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So part of the, the, the gospel-centered worldview that we are to share as Christians is, is this. It's to know that unbridled self-expression does not lead to freedom. It is, in fact, enslaving. And that's been Paul's message, his underlying message, really, throughout the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. So he's, he's saying, this is really relevant to you, Christians in Corinth. And let me just recap what he said. Remember, he starts off by saying, you got to remember who you are. You're God's people. You belong to him. You've been called together into the fellowship of his son. That's who you are. But then the rest of the letter, that's the beginning of chapter one, is basically him saying, but you've forgotten who you are. And because you've forgotten who you are, there's divisions in the church. These divisions are rooted in the partisanship of the culture around you. That's messed up your views of power. You value dominance over servanthood. It's messed up your views of wisdom. You value elitism over spiritual meekness and maturity. It's messed up your views of sex. One of you is sleeping with his stepmom. It's messed up your views of reconciliation. Some of you are taking each other to court. It's messed up your views of marriage. You've forsaken Christ-like, self-giving, covenantal devotion. And you've devalued singleness. It's messed up your views of grace. You're being legalistic. You're judging one another. It's messed up your views of corporate worship. You're idolatrous. You're dishonoring others. You're abusing the Lord's Supper. You're abusing the spiritual gifts that God has given you for the common good, turning them in on some way to glorify and magnify yourself. It's messed up your views of love. That's a summation of what 1 Corinthians has basically been saying to them. So you could say it like this. In their pursuit of freedom, as the culture defines freedom, self-expression, right? Be me. Bring, bring, bring uh, attention to myself. Bring glory to myself. That's where freedom lies. In their pursuit of that definition of freedom, they've become, Paul says, anything but free. They're instead burdened with all kinds of problems. You understand what Paul is saying and what God is saying through him to the church in Corinth. You might ask, why would God continue to bother with a messed up group of people like that? And the answer is the same as why God would continue to bother with a messed up group of people like us. Because God's mercy is greater than our sin. God's love for us is willing to reach far deeper than our worst offenses. Praise God for who God is. God's mercy is greater than our sin. He will not give up on his people. You are my people. And I'm, I'm your God. That's why he doesn't give up. So it's relevant to them and it's relevant to us. We experience the very same temptations that they were experiencing. And every church throughout the course of church history has experienced those same temptations. And very specifically, looking at 1 Corinthians over the course of the last, you know, six months or so now that we've been doing it, at least on my part, was intentional. We began in the fall 
And if you remember, it wasn't that long ago, what was going on in the fall, we were just coming off of a, a summer of tremendous social upheaval. We're heading into a political season, a presidential election, and, and, and there's this just, just constant partisan divide surrounding us. And so to listen to what Paul has to say about how that kind of thing can creep into the church and destroy the church was important for us. And now as we roll into spring, and we're getting to a point when, God willing, the virus is beginning to subside, the vaccines are beginning to roll out, we're, we're looking at the light at the end of the tunnel, we can maybe reopen again fully as a church and regather fully as the body of Christ. We're looking at these passages that talk about what you do when you get together as the church. And if this past year has brought anything, I think it's brought a couple of blessings to the church, even through all of the trials that we've experienced. And those blessings are this. I think God has shaken the tree. God is upending the normal rhythms of the church that we've grown comfortable with. And he's now rebuilding his church. So as we regather again, we want to ask this question, what kind of church are we going to be? How will our worship services then reflect that reality? How will we live and how will we worship together in the ordered freedom that God provides? That was a very long introduction heading into the text. We haven't even looked at the text yet. I understand that. But as we look at the text, I, I want us to, to take a, a sort of a, a, a bigger theological view into our understanding of what he's saying. What is it that God is trying to do, not just in the details and the specificity in which Paul is going to address how they do church, but what are the underlying assumptions, cultural presuppositions that he's still trying to root out, those idolatries that, that are deeply formed in our hearts to root out in order to make us the kind of people that he really wants us to be? So he, Paul has been talking about uh, uh, communion and how they're, how they're doing that. He's been talking about spiritual gifts. He was talking about uh, uh, the, the, an order uh, that was really complicated for us to look through, talking about how they were relating the head coverings, passages, men and women in the church. And now he's going to finish up with, again, a call to an order in their worship because the main idea is, again, we're here to build up one another and bring glory to God. So let's read verses 26, and I'll, I'll read through, uh, well, I'll stop when I stop. I'm not sure where I'm going to go. He says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let their be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I'm going to stop there. The first point this morning is really just to look at proper order in corporate worship. 
And I'm actually going to read uh, just right now verses 39 to 40, because I think this fits into that well, as well. So my brothers, again, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, I just spent, I don't know how many minutes doing an introduction talking about this idea of, of freedom, right? What's, God def- what's God's definition of freedom? What's our definition of freedom? And, and you may be wondering, how's that tie into what you just read here? Because that, that doesn't seem to jive, uh, at least on the surface. Here's what I want to, to see here. Look at verse 26. He says, again, when you come together, each one of you, so he's talking to the whole congregation here, and he's saying every member, which is something that we've been talking about, specifically through chapter 12, everybody has a gift, right? And everybody's valuable, And he says, so here, when you come together, each of you, you have a hymn, you have a lesson, you have a revelation, you have a tongue, you have an interpretation. I think another way we could say that is, this is freedom. When we come together, these gifts that God has given to us are an expression of the freedom that God has given to us as his people. There's tremendous freedom here. All of you have something to offer. And again, he brings in this, this, uh, this sort of guide rail here, that let all things be done for building up. There's freedom, but there's a, there's a purpose to that freedom. And there's also a guard. There's an order then that helps make sure that that freedom stays within the definition of God's view of freedom and doesn't veer into a sinful human sort of, I just get to be me and express myself view of freedom. Freedom without boundaries would be chaos and confusion, right? What if we all got together and each one of us has a hymn or a lesson or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation, and instead of waiting to hear each one out, we just all start doing it at the same time? We wouldn't understand what was happening. It would just be loud. It would be chaotic. It would be disruptive. We wouldn't be built up. We would just be going like, what's happening here, right? That's chaos. So freedom here without boundaries would be chaos. However, Paul wants to say the freedom that he's given within an order brings edification. And so he talks again about tongues and he talks about prophecies here. And he's saying when you do it, and this is something that we covered in much greater detail last Sunday. I'm not going to dive too deep into it again. But the point is, when you do those things, when those gifts are being brought, first of all, do them one at a time. Second of all, limit the number of those gifts that are being expressed in the corporate worship gathering to just maybe two or three per week. So again, you've got some, just some boundaries here. The freedom is there, but it's guided by an order. He also says here that, that when, uh, we're, we're either, uh, when we're giving these prophecies, that there also should be additional guidelines. One is that those need to be weighed. We already talked in great detail last week about the fact that when tongues are given, they need to be interpreted. When prophecies are given, they need to be weighed. They need to be evaluated. Are these legitimate prophecies? Are these words that are being given to the congregation by the Spirit, or is this a false prophecy? I don't think that means to imply that if somebody were to give up, excuse me, stand up and give a, give a prophetic utterance to the body, that we've got to weigh out whether, you know, every, every single thing that person says, some of it's going to be true and maybe some of it's going to be false. I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means is certain people are going to get up and they're going to express their spiritual gift and it will be from the Spirit. And because of what they said in totality, we can weigh it against Scripture and say that's valid. And there may be others who stand up and what they say in totality, you can weigh against Scripture and say, that's a false prophet. So there's the boundary of of weighing out what's been said. And then he also says in verse 32 that once, when when we do weigh those things out and the spirits of prophecy, he says, are subject to the prophets. So I think he means maybe two things there. One, that what we say if we give a prophetic uttering is to be weighed out and it's subjected to the evaluation of other prophets. 
I think he also means, though, that there's a measure of self-control that you have. If you have a prophetic gift and you're giving that gift, and I think this would apply to tongues, and I think it would apply to any other gift, you have control not to just blurt it out. But as he says here, you can wait and let somebody else finish and then give what you are bringing to contribute to the body in turn. It's subject to you. It's not, it's not that the spiritual gifts are these sort of like spontaneous eruptions that we just don't have any control over. It's subject to you. Just wait your turn. Do it in order. Do it decently. So it's pretty self-explanatory what he's saying here in regards to tongues and prophets. Again, based on and following up on what we shared about what they are last week, and if you missed that, you can go back and listen to it. The, the bottom line here is to do that decently in an order. Let it be limited. Let it be, again, for the building up of the body. Now, perhaps the biggest question that pops up when we read this text is, what's this whole business about verses 34 to 35? I'll read it again. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. What does that mean? Well, first of all, let me say that it's important that we go back to what was said in chapter 11. Is Paul making a blanket, a blanket statement here that women are not to speak at all in the gathered worship service of the church. Well, he can't mean that. Because back in chapter 11, he made it very clear that women are praying and prophesying in the church service just like the men are. And in this text, we can see that he says that when, when you come together, again, verse 26, each one of you has something to bring, a hymn, a lesson, whatever. He talks about uh, that, that sort of uh, uh, all of you uh, mindset here as well when he talks a little bit more specifically about the prophecies themselves and how they're given. So it's not that he's saying directly that women aren't to speak at all in the church. So what is it that he's saying? Go back again to what we talked about in chapter 11. In, in chapter 11, the focus there was on giving honor to the spiritual leaders, to the spiritual heads within the church and in the home. And the concern, again, that Paul had for the women in the congregation when they were wearing, uh, or excuse me, when they were not wearing the head coverings is that they were communicating something that was bringing dishonor to their husbands. They were communicating something that was bringing dishonor to the congregation and to the, the church leadership there. And Paul was saying, that's not appropriate. Likewise here, I think what he's saying is, when prophecies are being weighed out, that's when women aren't to be speaking in the church. You say, well, again, still, why? What's the, what's the, what's the reasoning behind that? We talked about the prophetic gift as having both a, uh, a, a general application that God can give that gift to anybody in the congregation, we also talked about it as being probably an office within the church at that time. Remember we said that there weren't yet elders established in the Corinthian church context. Later in Paul's epistles, he addresses elders and establishes elders in, in other churches, and it's there where we, don't, we no longer see prophets being described. So we think that there was this period of time in the very early church in where the apostolic gifts were present, the apostles were still alive, and there were prophetic uh, offices in the church, pre-elders, where there was an authority of church leadership given to them. And I think that's what Paul's referring to when he says these other prophets are to weigh out the, the prophecies that are given in the congregation. There's a leadership office in the church that's weighing what's said and affirming whether or not it's a true prophet or a false prophet. It's similar to what Paul says in 2 Timothy, or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he talks there about women not having authority to, over a man or to be able to teach a man. You say, again, what is, what is that all about? Well, right after that, 
Right after he says that, he talks about what the qualifications for elders are. And it's very clear that that's, a, that's an office in the church that's given to men. And it's their responsibility to be the guardians, if you will, of what's sound doctrine in the church. So likewise, how those two, two things are paired up right next to each other there, I think they're paired up right next to each other here. He's just said certain prophets are supposed to weigh what's being said. I think he's talking about the office of prophet, and he's saying that's where women are to be silent. It seems like most commentators believe that there was probably a, an issue happening in the Corinthian church. Again, we've got, we've got this self-expression. We've got this idea of freedom that's being flaunted errantly in the congregation. And, and there seems to be consensus that it's probable that women were hearing the, what was being said, and rather than waiting for the leaders to weigh it out, they were interjecting their opinions. Or maybe they were hearing what the, what the, other, what the leader prophets were saying and disagreeing with them in front of everybody, which again would bring dishonor to their husbands or would bring dishonor to the congregation, would bring dishonor to the leadership. I think that's what Paul means here when he says, so women, be silent. That's the weighing of prophecies is not your role or responsibility in the congregation. And again, he doesn't leave them in the dark. He says, look, if you want to ask those questions, ask those questions. Just don't do it in the public gathering. Wait till you get home. Talk it through with your spouse. That's my understanding of these texts. Now, I said when we talked about it back in chapter 11, these are difficult texts to understand. I wish Paul was more clear about exactly what he meant in these texts. But I also believe that even if he was, more clear, we'd still find reasons to want to disagree with him. <laughs> but that's my understanding of what he's saying here. So again, go back to the big picture. You've got three, three different exercises here where Paul is saying somebody speaks and, somebody, and the rest of you don't speak. Somebody's giving a tongue, the rest of you, be silent. Somebody's giving a prophecy, the rest of you, be silent. When that's being weighed out, Specifically, for if there were some disruptive women, he's saying to them, be silent. Order. Decency. For the purpose of the body being built up and edified. It's, other than the difficulty of that section there in verses 34 and 35, I think the text is very self-explanatory. It's pretty simple. Proper order in corporate worship is something that God has ordained here so that we can have freedom as he has designed freedom within the boundaries that he's also set of order. Now the question that we have to ask, because it's the question that Paul anticipates the Corinthians asking is, does that push against your cultural presuppositions of what makes you free? We, we, we hear these instructions and it would be very easy for the Corinthians, and it's very easy for us to say, I don't like that teaching. This idea of restraint, this idea of restriction, this idea of some people can speak and some people can't, some people have to wait their turn, uh, some people have to subject themselves to others weighing whether or not what you said is even valid or not, that doesn't feel like self-expression. That doesn't let me be me. That doesn't let me do me, Right? Does that push against your cultural presuppositions of what makes you free? Well, Paul addresses that in the next verses, 36. He says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it's reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul's moved now from a proper order in corporate worship to, I think we could say it like this, the proper order of authority, using order in a maybe slightly different way here. There's an order of authority, Paul's saying, that, that, that takes precedent over all that you do in the church, and it's this. It's what you've been given through the apostolic delivery of God's word. Corinthians, if you believe for a minute 
that you've somehow received something more enlightened, that you've received something directly from God that, that goes above and beyond what I've already delivered to you as an apostle of God, you got the order wrong. It doesn't work like that. There's an order of authority and that God has given specifically to the apostles to deliver his word to the church. Again, in this context, the scriptures weren't complete yet. We talked about this last week. That's why I think the role of prophecy still had revelatory uh, ability to it. God was still speaking directly to the church. It still had to be weighed out, though, against what the apostles had already delivered, what Jesus had already said, what the Old Testament had already confirmed. Now we live in a day and age when the apostolic witness is complete. And we're just as easily tempted with the Corinthians to say, you know what, uh, that doesn't necessarily fit a 21st century mindset. Some of it does. We'll keep that. But some of this stuff's too hard. It's too difficult. It doesn't really fit with our cultural presuppositions. I mean, this teaching on women, even if we take it at its best possible meaning, which is, I think, what I delivered, we can still push against that and say, that's, that's, that's too limiting. And Paul's saying, if you believe that, then you're a false prophet. If you are truly spiritual, you're going to understand that what I've delivered and what I'm saying is from God. There's a biblical authority at play here. There's an apostolic authority at play here that cannot be jumped over by an enlightened group of people. That's still very relevant today. There's a pastor, actually a church planter that I knew. Uh, I still know him, but um, he was here in the city. Planted a church here in the city and then, and then left. And I, I remember when I first met with this church planter, as he arrived in Chicago, he wanted to meet with existing pastors, and so he met with me, and I remember talking to him about his, just what his plans were for, for planting the church, and I was really trying to drill down, like, are you... Are you like gospel-centered? Are you committed to the word of God? I remember asking those questions and, and oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I said, good, because if you are, we need more of you. Come. If you're not going to do that, don't come. No, no, that's exactly what we're wanting to do. And so they came and they planted the church and, and, and over time I just watched the church sort of slide doctrinally, slide away from affirming God's word to a point that I was very, very uncomfortable with, and then they left. And he's now in a different city, and he's at another church. He's not the pastor, he's under the pastor, but I saw him post something on social media about two weeks ago that really shook me. And it was basically quoting his current pastor who's, base, who's, who's saying this, the Bible is not the word of God. It can contain the word of God, but it's not the word of God. It's the word of people. It's written by communities. And their understanding of God and their understanding of the things of God has sort of evolved over time. So we could go back to the Old Testament and we could see this picture of a God who seems very vindictive, who asks his people to, to commit genocide and things like that and say that was their understanding of God. That was not the word of God. And you can see where that trajectory goes. If you follow that trajectory to its end, you pretty much end up at a place where you just affirm a Jesus that looks like you want him to look, right? You can dismiss anything that he says that you, I don't think that's what God's like. My cultural presuppositions say this is what God is like and therefore anything else I can reject. That's what, then that's what's happened. And it's easy to happen for any of us, right? If we, if we look at the word of God, if we look at what's been delivered to us and we say our cultural presuppositions push against this, we have to ask very seriously the question, who's changed? Has God changed or have we? I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Corinthians, your cultural presuppositions have gone way out of bounds. 
Your pursuit of freedom has gone way off the rails. And it's leading to a place of, of absolute enslavement. Look at our own culture today. Right? You, the constant message for us is you, you, you are free to self-express. That's the value. You do you. You self-express. You be your authentic self. And it's obvious if we look around, is that bringing order? Is it bringing freedom or is it bringing chaos? Is it bringing more divisiveness? Of course it is. It's not tenable. So Paul's pulling us back to the word. You're not the only ones, and you're certainly not the first ones to receive it. Keep what you've received. And as you keep it, you recognize that God's definition of freedom is realized in order. So we find our freedom in God's order. Let me just fill that out a little bit more theologically as application and wrap up. Finding our freedom in order, again, in order that builds up the church, that's what we're aiming to do. That leads to glorifying God. We ask, what's our purpose when we gather together? It's to glorify God and to build up the church. If finding our freedom in the order that God has designed for us leads to building up the church, that also leads to glorifying God. Why? How does that glorify God? Beyond just that that's what he's laid out for us. That's what the word tells us to do. That's true, but there's a deeper reason. It's this. It's because it reflects him. When we express our freedom within the bounds of the order that God has designed and, and created for us, it reflects him. And therefore, it leads to his praise. I love the way that Stephen Um, a pastor in Boston, has articulated this. He says, the order of freedom is the result of the creative and redemptive activity of God. It reflects him. In the creative activity of God, we can look back at Genesis chapter 1 and see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does it say about that moment? It says the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And then the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he saw that it was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day. The darkness he called night. There was evening. There was morning. There was order now, right? And he says that, that was the first day. And then we could read on and see how every day there's more order being brought about through this creation act. And this is, this is what we need to understand about that. God takes chaos. He takes void, and he orders it. He fills the void. He gives it form, and his creative work then brings about ordered freedom. His design is not anarchy. The universe is ordered. It's predictable. It's not tyranny. People are free to cultivate. They're free to create. What it is, is it's an ordered freedom. The order and design of the universe compel his people to exercise our freedom in an orderly way too. So we see that when, 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 we, when we understand freedom within order, it's reflective of the creative aspect of God, his activity in creation. It's also reflective of his redemptive activity. How so? Well, think about who he is. There's a perfect harmony within the three persons of the Godhead. We focus on the Trinity quite a bit in our First Corinthians study. It's so central to our understanding of who we are. Each person of the Trinity has a particular focus. The Father sends the Son. The Son submits to the Father's sending. And the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son in order to highlight the Son's work. You look at the Trinity, you see the Trinity is the ultimate picture of an ordered and free community in which the persons 
give themselves freely for the good and the joy of others. So he's, there's, a, there's an application for the church. When, when we understand how to operate freely within the order that God gives, we reflect what God looks like and how he acts. And not only does the order reflect the activity of God, it also serves as a reminder of his faithfulness to fulfill his very promises to deliver us, to deliver us from the chaos of sin. I had uh, Jarmaine read from Jeremiah 31 to start the service. It's a very appropriate thing to start any worship service as it reminds us of our covenant relationship with God. But it, it does something else there. God promises this coming day when he would, he would make a new covenant. That's been fulfilled in Jesus. We live in that covenant now. That's the day when the law of God is, is going to be written on the hearts of God's people. And again, he would be our God and we will be our people. That's our existence today. But in verses 35 to 36, the last couple of, of verses that she read, remember it said this, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. He's saying this is who God is. He's the God who's given order to all of creation. And then it says this, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. What he's saying there is, this fixed order isn't departing. This is how I've established the universe. There's an order, and every time you see that order at play, when you see the sunrise in the morning and set at night, you see the moon, you see the earth circling the sun year after year, you see the waves roar and the tides come in and go out, you see the order of God as a reminder to you that I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. For as long as that continues, be reminded, I will never leave my people. So does order matter in the church? It does if we want to see who God is. It does if we want to know what he's like, and it does if we want to be reminded of his faithful promises to us that will not end. His order is the symbol of promise for our hope of our ultimate freedom. So it is with the church then that, that understands this, this church that lives and worships together in the freedom of God's order. We're no longer duped into believing that our self-expression is the priority. We submit ourselves to the authority of the word of God and we devote ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that results in a suppression of my self-centered opinions. It results in a, a suppression of my preferences, of my need to be heard. My need to alter God's ways to fit more comfortably into my own cultural presuppositions. It suppresses all of that. Instead, teaching us to desire the Lord to speak into the body through the ordered and comprehensible exercises of his gifts through his people. I want to hear from you, and I want to hear you clearly, and I want to hear from you, and I want to hear you clearly, because God has gifted you, and he's speaking to us, and he's revealing himself to us. And I want, the, I want the, the leaders of the congregation, the elders, to, to weigh out rightly what's been said so that we can discern what's true and what's good from what's not true and what's not good. We need that so that all things can be used for the building up of the church into a mature family that reflects the glory of God and reveals then what true freedom looks like and offers it to humanity in Christ. I do wonder, as I consider, what has God been doing over this last year? How difficult has it been to, to see the church upended and, 
and, and, and, you know, I mean, everything, everything that we expect to be and do as a church has just been sort of pulled out from under us. It does not mean that God is not faithful. Because every morning over the last year, you've seen that sunrise and you've seen it set. God is speaking loudly to us that he will not leave or forsake his people, but he will reform his church. He's shaking the tree. So as we gather together, what is God bringing back together? And when, when we see what God has left here and what God has added here, it's a good reminder for us to say, okay, Lord, help us to now live according to what you've said, your order. Let us be a people who are the church as you intended. Maybe that's not what we've been. that's something to pray for so Lord we do pray that way help us to comprehend the things that Paul has said over the last four chapters help us not just to, to focus on the details of how to do communion or what spiritual gifts are or what turn to take when to be quiet and when to speak up. Lord, those are important details, but I, I do think that what you're trying to say to us is, is a little deeper than that. You're trying to show us what it means to be truly human, redeemed through Jesus Christ, a new people, the kind of people that belong to a God like you. So we do pray, Lord, that you would form us and that we would obey you we would walk in you. We would choose to walk daily in you and with you and together as the body of Christ with an ethic of love and a motivation to build up one another for your glory and for our good. Teach us what it means to be that kind of church and help us, Lord, to stay there for your glory and our good. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.